<clears throat> if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, where we will continue this morning in our brief departure from the book of Colossians to consider this amazing passage that we find here of uh, a compelling and really intriguing colloquy that we have as it relates to Christ expressing his gratitude to the Father for basically the plan of salvation and redemption and the purpose of accomplishing his sovereign will in that context through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, J.C. Ryle would say that there are few passages in the four Gospels more important than this one. There's a similar passage recorded in the Gospel of Luke, of course, and in the Gospel of John, you see an amplification of the doctrines that are communicated here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through um, 30. In fact, um, in many ways, what we find here in Matthew chapter 11 is almost a summary outline of the Gospel of John as it relates to the work and person of Jesus Christ, because the focus of the Gospel of John, unlike the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is really more focused on the work of Christ as Savior and His ability to save and the relationship between Himself and the Father to accomplish that end um, through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, this gives us a really unique insight into the dynamics that relate in terms of the work of the Trinity in salvation. Before we get into this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. We uh, thank you so much for loving us as we've just sung about, and we are grateful for the fact that you loved us first. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of those things that we have read so far today from the book of Jeremiah, how you are in control, how you raise up, how you cast down, how you confound the wise, how you bless the humble, how you are the potter and we are the clay. You form and fashion according to your purpose and your plan. We are grateful that we are known by you. We are rejoicing today that we can come here as the redeemed of Christ and that you are um, in charge of all things. Uh, we are reminded that in the book of Revelation that there's this amazing picture that you have given to us of your control and your wonder and your splendor and your majesty and that Jesus Christ is in charge and He is unfolding history in accordance with the plan of the Trinity. We thank You for these wonderful truths to give us confidence to live in a day that's confusing and challenging, bewildering, uh, and difficult. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ, and may this passage this morning do that for us, we pray in His name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 11 Beginning with verse 25, reads as follows, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Christ here, of course, is, is making a proclamation that of, uh, in many ways is, is 
confusing on its face perhaps, but was intended to be a rebuke to those of his day that were criticizing him, accusing him of all sorts of things, of evilness and wickedness and being a, a person of, of uh, falsehood, if you will, by the, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of his day, the self-righteous of his day. And after hearing the report of the 70 witnesses who went out and came back, that there had been a great response to it, and that many demons had been cast out, and by implication, many people saved, he enters into this, um, this, this anthem of praise to the Father. Ultimately, in verse 25, as we know from studying last week, that what Christ is saying in praising the Father and engaging in this anthem of praise is that I agree with your verdict. I agree with the fact that you have chosen to do things in a way that confounds the wise, but is exalting and glorifying to you for your purpose and your plan of salvation. That's significant for us. We think we need to do the same thing. The lesson, the object lesson, of course, by example, is that rather than bucking against God's sovereignty, as so many people do, people hate it. People don't like it. People don't want to hear about it. Preachers avoid it because they know if they talk about it, people won't come. But what we need to do is to imitate Christ in this context to understand that we ought to exult in the wonders of God's sovereignty. We ought to rejoice in the fact that He is in charge and that He is in control and not try to rectify in our minds some of the perhaps confounding ideas that are attendant with it. God's mind is greater than our own. Even the psalmist would declare, your mind is above me. I cannot understand it but to rejoice and to worship and wonder and awe over a God that is like that, rather than to trying to fashion him into something that makes our minds more comfortable, which is oftentimes what we do. Indeed, I think the theology of free will is a product of that very mindset. Unable to recon reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to believe, they come up with a theology that allows somehow an escape from that conundrum. And robbing God of his glory and his sovereignty is not the way to get around it. Rather, we need to humbly submit to it, agree with the verdict, as that root Greek word communicates to us for the word praise there, and to humbly submit, because it is in the context of humbleness that God blesses and builds us up. Well, verse 26 is a continuation of that type of reflection that's found at the beginning of verse 25, and we have this interlude, this pause, if you will, about the fact that there was a, uh, that, that what is happening, God's way of salvation is well-pleasing. It brings gratitude. It is something that the Trinity exalts in. Christ says, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Basically saying to us, it doesn't matter what you think, because it was well-pleasing in your sight. Ultimately, he's saying, I don't really care if it makes you mad, <laughs> so get over yourselves. This is indeed a powerful passage, and I, um, uh, I, I agree that in many ways, and J.C. Ryle makes the same point that the sovereignty of God in this matter is a deep mystery, it is indeed difficult to fathom at times. But it's not, we are not called to make it more understandable or more appealing. We're simply called to reflect on it and to engage in the wonder of worship that it causes. That's what we're called to do. 
Man's way is to try to refashion it. Man's way is to try to capitulate it and make it in such a way that it does make sense. Do we not find even in Jeremiah that when Jeremiah makes a proclamation about what God is going to do about the potter and the clay, what did the people say? We are the wise ones. We are the leaders. We will do it our way. And indeed, the, thing, the, the passage that follows in Jeremiah is incredibly powerful. I, I mean, Jeremiah is calling down all heaven on him. He doesn't pull any punches. He's saying, deal with them, God. In your righteousness, in your judgment, in your wrath, deal with them. Well, we're grateful that we're spared from that. That's ultimately what we rejoice in in a passage such as we have before us today. And so for Jer- for. For Jeremiah and for Christ, the idea is that we rejoice in the verdict, we don't buck against it. And ultimately, what we find then is as we move into this passage here in Jeremiah or in, in Matthew chapter 11, um, there is an explanation about who the Father is, who the Son is, the relationship between the two, the roles that they play, which leads then to the, the, to the invitation in verse 28. We asked ourselves some questions last week about the idea of the ability of Christ to fulfill the invitation. So we have to have verse 27. Well, we have to have all of it, but we have to have verse 25 and 26 and 27 for 28 and 29 and 30 to make any sense. If indeed Christ is the one who is able to make and extend the invitation, we have to understand why that is. And last Sunday we began to get into that a little bit and to consider why it is that Christ is indeed sufficient and adequate to accomplish these things. We consider the fact that in Matthew that there is a demonstration that Jesus, who is the Son of God, has authority over many things. He has authority over Satan and the demons and over human ailments and handicaps and the winds and the waves and the body and the soul and life and death and people and the power to save. And that's what the Gospels do for us. The Gospels give us a picture of the adequacy of Jesus, why it is that our faith can be in Him, why the, the object of our faith is, in fact, in Jesus Christ. We have to have that information because faith consists of some important components. We have, a, we have knowledge, we have assent, and we have trust. And so, Matthew and Mark and Luke give us the knowledge, the information that we need. And in the context of our faith, we assent to the fact that indeed there is no other man like him, that he indeed is the Son of God, like the centurion beneath the cross would say, you indeed are the Son of God. That proclamation by the centurion was made upon what he had seen, the knowledge that he had, and the ascent, and ultimately, I think, even the trust. It's a powerful scene. And so our faith is predicated upon that which we are given in Scripture to trust and to understand. And this is ultimately what Matthew is doing for us here in this gospel. He's writing to a group, group of people that we know are, are cynics and critics and, 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 and hard-hearted, He's giving them the facts and the details. They're, they're being given the information against which they will be held accountable. Christ is ultimately all that what the sinner needs. 
This is why we have this interlude or this, this interesting um, paragraph in verse 27 that comes before the invitation in verse 28. And so we see at the beginning of verse 27 this important statement, all things. So let's begin to unpackage verse 27 and understand how it is that Jesus can make the invitation of verse 28. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so what we find here then is that Christ has a specific role and there is a purpose attached to his life and his work. It is to bring about a resolution of the issue that exists between God and man. Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that in Christ all things are reconciled. And so the reconciliation flows through the idea that Christ is able to bring about a resolution to bring about that reconciliation, to provide a way of salvation, the means by which the Father can be in relationship with an unholy fallen mankind. Let's not forget against the background against which this is set, the background of fallen humanity. People need the Lord. Why? Because they have failed. They cannot fulfill the law. They are in Adam. They are condemned. They are justly so. They stand before a thrice holy God. There has to be a resolution of this in some way, and that resolution comes in Jesus Christ. And so what we find then ultimately is the, the, the emphasis here in verse 27 is the adequacy and completeness of the work and person of Jesus Christ to achieve what the Father has intended before the foundation of the world for the elect. He is the mediator, and in the mediator there is peace. In the mediator, there is light, there is life, there is love, there is joy. And all of these qualities have been entrusted to Christ by the Father. We begin to get the sense of this by the communication that's back and forth. It may appear to be a little confusing that Christ is saying, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, but that shows a level of intimacy and, and revelation and confidence and communication within the context of the relationship of the two to bring about the salvation that is intended. Indeed, the 70 coming back and reporting their good news is based upon the fulfillment of what Christ has done and can do in terms of salvation. None of this is possible without Jesus Christ. And so what we find in verse 27, that the mediator, Jesus Christ, has whatever is needed to render a human being truly blessed in terms of salvation. Not material wealth, not affluence, not fame, not your best life now, but a Savior who can save. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. And I think that's beautiful for us, beautiful for us to consider as we begin to unpackage this. And so let's look at this issue of knowing. We understand that Jesus Christ would know what the sinner needs. How does he know? How does Jesus Christ know what the sinner needs? Isn't that an important issue? Would not Jesus Christ have to know what the sinner needs in order to invite him to come to him? Verse 28 says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. So the invitation is predicated upon understanding the need of a particular group of people. Well, how does he know? Well, he knows because the Father has revealed it to him. Look what it says. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And all things, by the way, here means all things. All right, so we have the word all in Scripture sometimes is confusing to people because sometimes it means every single thing, and sometimes it means a large group of things. I've used the example before. We can say that all, all, all of Ohio watch the Buckeyes whip the Badgers last night. You would not understand that to mean, however, that every single person in Ohio watched that game. Or we could say that all of Cleveland watch the Browns put it to the Steelers on Thursday night. We would not understand that to mean, of course, that all of Cleveland was watching that game, although I think most were. I know the Nelsons were. <laughs> but here we understand this word to mean everything, all things. Anything that you can conceive of, Christ is in charge of and has been handed over to him. Paul affirms this very same statement in Colossians chapter 1, where we see Christ exalted in those wonderful passages from that first chapter. I encourage you to go back and read that. So we understand then that Christ has what the sinner needs, and he knows what the sinner needs. And he knows what the sinner needs because it says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. So great and so glorious is the heart of Christ that none but the Father can fathom its riches of knowledge, wisdom, and love. Um, This word son is used here. It shows a familiarity, a bond, a loving bond, a familial bond. And it shows an important relationship that leads itself and lends itself to the idea of a revelation that is occurring between the two that is unique to them. The needs of the sinner are revealed between the Father and the Son in the context of their joining together in that manner. This is a relationship that's existed from all of eternity. Paul would even say in Colossians 2, 3, that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And this is what this is speaking to. That the fullness of the Godhead dwells within him, Colossians 2, 9. And that we have attained fullness in him, Colossians 2.10. And by implication here, Matthew is doing the very same thing. That from an inexhaustible reservoir that only the Father knows and only the Son has, is there this sense in which you can complete that which I have given you to do, which is to redeem the elect. Isn't that beautiful? The Father is confident in the Son's ability to bring about that which the Trinity intended before the very foundation of the world, which is your salvation. Your salvation is no small matter, friend. Think about this for a minute. I want you to worship right now. I want you to wonder, even in the, perhaps the complexity of the passage, think about this for a moment, that in the context of the Trinity, each one knew what the other knew in the, in the, in the context of being able to apply the ultimate purpose of redemption to us. 
The exactness of it is unbelievable. There is a fullness to this. The Son fully knows what's in the Father's mind and heart. The Father knows what's fully in the mind of the Son and His ability to accomplish salvation and redemption. And the two working together bring about a salvation that is complete and full because working together cooperatively, they can save a man to the uttermost. That is the picture. This idea of knowing is so important because it says to us that that Jesus is not somehow just in the dark, that he's on the side. There's There's a tendency within those who look at the Trinity to diminish the work and person of Jesus Christ as if he is lesser. Well, Paul, I mean, Mike and Pat Abendroth dissuaded us of any idea that that's the case at all. While there is order, there is not subordination in the context of inadequacy. While there is designation, there is fullness and completeness in each person in the Trinity, and they accomplish their work and coordination with each other based upon knowing exactly what each of them think and have been, has been revealed. This is, why John, this is why John would record and others would record as well that Christ would say that I and my Father are one. This level of intimacy is important because it speaks to the idea of the fullness of the adequacy of the invitation then that is communicated in verse 28. And so Matthew here in recording this is communicating to us the fact that that the all things, the sufficiency of Christ is indeed complete. There's nothing that's empty or missing in it at all. Christ, who knows the Father, and the Father knows what the sinner needs, knows that the Son can provide what the Father needs. The Son knows what the Father requires. The Son has accomplished what the Father requires. And in conjunction with that, they make application of that to then the sinner. Now, it's interesting that Christ then says that what he does know and what he's been given the ability to do by the Father and what he's been called to do by the Father is done in accordance with his will. His will. Not yours. I know that's shocking and perhaps even upsetting, but that's exactly what's being communicated to us here. I don't think we need to to gloss this in any way. Isn't it wonderful that because Christ knows the Father, He possesses the necessary knowledge as to exactly what the Father requires a sinner have in order to be saved? That's beautiful. So great is salvation. He knows precisely the requirements that the Father has relative to the salvation of a sinner. And He can do it. And only He can do it. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Right? Why is that? It's because of this. It's because of this. And so since the Son, think about this. Think about this. Since the Son knows the Father 
and knows him in the way and the manner in which Matthew is describing for us. Since the Son knows the Father, he alone and only he is able to reveal him. That's it. Only the Son can fully reveal. This is why the latter part of that verse is included. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Why can he reveal him? Because he knows the Father and he knows what is required. Such a powerful passage. There's so much here. And so we have a sense then of which there is this picture of knowledge, this, this revelation this, this, this revealing works through the Holy Spirit. There's not a direct reference here by the, to the Holy Spirit, but by implication, that's how the revelation would occur. Do you, do you think I'm wrong on that? Perhaps you may, but I'm not. Look at John. We go back to Nicodemus all the time because it's just a perfect picture of what is happening in Matthew chapter 11, the fulfillment of it, the playing of it out. Again, Christ demonstrating his adequacy. If we go back to John chapter 3, we have Nicodemus coming to Christ at night. He's going to cut a deal. He's going to be the first in the kingdom. He wants to be in. He's seeing what Christ is doing. It's amazing. People are being healed. There's all sorts of things. Who is this guy? John chapter, one, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, an interesting statement. Jesus answered and said to him, doesn't engage him in the conversation. He knows Nicodemus' heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That has nothing to do with what he just said. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the idea of revelation, the working of the Spirit, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is the revelation. That is the idea of what Matthew is communicating in verse 27, the idea of revealing. He reveals it through the Holy Spirit. The act of regeneration, of, of course, is definitely implicated here. And so in John chapter 3, we have this picture of this very thing being played out. And so I think we ought to take the time to really contemplate the significance and the wonder and the magnitude of what is stated here with regard to this issue of knowing and knowledge, the depth of it, the relationship. And, and again, we, we can't lose the sense in which this is being communicated. It's interesting, too, that if we take into consideration all the things that Christ is going through up until this point in time, he is being highly criticized by the Pharisees. He's being attacked by the Jews. He's got people who are coming after him constantly, being threatened, being reviled, being accused of everything, being mocked, 
all sorts of things. And it's interesting to me that what Christ, what Jesus doesn't do is to try to take some, uh, some value from relationships with the world in the context of what people think or say, but he is sufficiently confident in the fact that the Father knows that what he's doing is perfect and complete in accordance with the Father's will. Doesn't matter what the world thinks. Doesn't matter what the world says. Doesn't matter what the Pharisees are saying. He knows that the Father's working in the context of what's communicated in verse 25. That He has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, but has revealed them to the infants, the humble, is what that means, of course. So all things have been handed over to the Father, or to the Son by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. The Pharisees can say what they want. People can say all sorts of things about Him, but the Father knows the Son's heart. The Father knows the completeness and sufficiency of the work of Christ. The Son is fully known by the Father. There is no shadow of doubt. There is no shading. There is no variation. There is no concern. This is an affirmation of the acceptance of the suitability of the one who would be offered and is offered. That's beautiful. And interesting, too, in the context that the crucifixion hasn't yet occurred. In the context of a chronology of events. Yet we have an affirmation of of the work of Christ by the Father. Christ is saying this. He's proclaiming it. Now, this would make him even angrier, wouldn't you think? Let's really crucify him now. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Well, that's, in their minds, blasphemy. So the Son understands what is needed. He knows what the sinner needs because the Father has revealed it to him. Don't forget that. You have a great Savior. The Father did not withhold anything from you. Isn't that beautiful? The Father did not give you a partially adequate Savior. The Father did not give to you one who could only partially save you, who could save you by three-quarters percent or seven-eighths or 98% save you. No, He gave you a complete Savior because He knew exactly what you would need. This is so powerful. This is why I'm baffled by the fact that people just get into all of these other things of, of, of adding their own righteousness and the issue of control and all those things. I don't care how much free will you have. If the Son hasn't revealed Himself to you, you don't have anything. Now, let me say something else. Think about this for a minute. Look what it says. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Oh, man. What what else would the Father and the Son have communicated with each other? What else? Those whom Christ would save. For whom did Christ die? What do you think the Father is revealing to the Son? How do we know that that would have been revealed to Christ by the Father? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 tells me that. In the council of the triune God, there is a revelation between the persons of the Trinity as to the effecting of the proclamation that God would redeem His people. 
Matthew chapter 1, he came to save his people. How does he know who his people are? The Father told him who his people are. That's a limited number of people. It's a lot of people, but it's not everybody. Now, I know people struggle with this. This goes to the issue of the doctrine of, of particular redemption or limited atonement. But what the Father is revealing to the Son, those to whom He has specifically given Him to save. On the cross, it is finished. What did He accomplish? He accomplished the very idea of what was being communicated in the council of the Trinity, that is the redemption of the elect. It is finished. My blood has been shed. Now, Christ's blood has a forensic legal quality. If Christ's blood is shed and applied, it then perfectly justifies. It perfectly covers. It is a complete salvation. Nothing need be added to it by anyone, especially you. So in the counsel between the Father and the Son... What he is saying and communicating to us is that the Son knows exactly whom the Father has given him to save. John 17 in the high priestly prayer affirms that. And so, this speaks to the ability to know who needs it, to know what they need, and to give it to them. That's you and me, friends. Are you not overwhelmed by this? In the words of Maximus the gladiator, are we not entertained? We ought to be. This ought to drive us to our knees. This is a a passage of wonder, of amazing reflection. Now, it it goes on to say that, that Christ then engages in something that is important. In the latter part of verse 27, understanding then what is going on, it says, and to anyone and anyone to whom the Father, to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Well, this is profound and certainly um, significant for us to comprehend. Since the Son knows the Father, He alone is able to reveal the Father. And he does reveal him. We know that from Scripture. Again, the Gospel of John spends a lot of time talking about this. And so to this phrase that's that's stated before this part of verse 27, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, it's, it's added, as we see, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is this must not be interpreted to mean that the Son is reluctant to reveal the Father. Because we just know from verse 25 that the Son has been praising the Father for having revealed salvation to His humble children. These words, however, indicate that the salvation of God's children is dependent not upon anything in them, but solely upon the revelation by Christ to them. And that revelation, in turn, is based solely upon the will and delight of both the Father and the Son. Because going back into verse 27, what the Son would have known about the Father and the Father about the Son is that which would have brought them to delight. That phrase we know to be true because of verse 26. It was well-pleasing in your sight 
to do what you did in verse 25. And oh, by the way, verse 27 tells me that between the council of the triune God, that was exactly known to be the case. Who would be saved? What was needed? Who would, to whom it would be revealed? A beautiful passage. The revelation is based solely upon the will and delight of both the Father and the Son. For not only as to essence, but also as to purpose, the Father and Son are always one. Always one. Always working. John 10 verse 30 speaks of this. So from start to finish, therefore, salvation is based solely on sovereign grace. That's what we're told here. The Reformers would affirm this in the context of, of the, the five solas, sola gratia, grace alone, ultimately for God's glory alone, soli deo gloria. And so we see here then this beautiful picture that's painted for us, and, and we also have then, there's more to this in terms of even even language that's important for us to comprehend and understand. Now, think about this for a moment. What we see here is that, that, that Christ's comfort amid, amid this widespread unbelief and, and, and mocking and misunderstanding is to revel in the relationship that is between Himself and the Father and to, to communicate this in a way that demonstrates that what is taking place and unfolding is in accordance with the will of the triune God. This is, this is a, a significant idea. Christ understands that the future is secured by the Father, that all that is unfolding is secured by the Father. The Father knows that the Son is in accordance with Him and His will and His purpose and His plan and will fulfill it perfectly. There is no tension at all. But in the context of salvation, then Christ demonstrates that He is in charge and in control in accordance with the Father's will. Now think about this for a second. What we find then in the latter part of Matthew 27 is this, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Again, this is not based upon any merit. This is not predicated upon anything that is found desirable in the person at all, ever. God did not save you because He looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would choose Him. He did not reveal Himself to you based upon looking into the future to see if you would believe in Him based upon your free will. The Father revealed to the Son in the context of, of the counsel of the triune God, those whom had been chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And it was those to whom Jesus revealed himself. This is the implication of this passage. There's a sense in which the idea communicated is that Christ reveals Himself to those with whom He is pleased to reveal Himself. This is not just mere inclination, but it's deliberate. So Christ here is interesting that He meets the haughty contempt of the wise. 
as communicated in chapter 20, verse 25, with the assertion that it depends on his inclination whether they are known to God or not. Not based upon themselves. This is not just merely a statement of a wish. This is a statement of fact. Friends, you know and are known by the Father through Jesus Christ because Christ chose to reveal Himself to you. Pure and simple. Pure and simple. Now, because of that, Christ then can say in verse 28, come to me. Come to me. The implications of this passage cannot be escaped. Now, does this mean that I don't preach the gospel? Of course not. Why do I preach? Because God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to bring to himself his people. How will they be saved? How will they know? Well, he sends out preachers. And the preachers do what? Well, they entertain you. They tell you, they give you TED Talks, they tell you funny stories, they get engaged in social justice movements and BLM and wokeness, and they do all those things because that's going to make a big difference for you. No, a preacher of the gospel is to do what? Preach the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel's all about Jesus Christ and your need for a Savior and of, of, of His adequacy to achieve the end that the Father intended to bring about the redemption of the elect. So I tell you about Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell you about Jesus Christ. My job is to tell you about Jesus Christ and to call you to faith in Him alone, to rest in His finished work, not in your own. And it is by that means that God has prescribed that He will call to Himself His people and save them. This is a great comfort to us, and I trust today that even though the passage may on its face have some level of complexity, I think once it's unpackaged, it's very clear what it means. We have a Savior who can fully save to the uttermost. There is no, there is no inadequacy in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that's missing from Him in any way. There's not a sense in which the Father is in heaven wringing His hands, wondering, oh, did He do enough? Is it enough? Can he, did, he, did He do enough? Did it, did it all work? Will it work? I hope it does. I don't know. Maybe. No. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. The Father is seated on His throne. The Son has been given the book. The seals have been opened. History has played, it, played, played itself out. And Christ is in charge of everything. All the time all the time. I don't care who's the president. I don't care who controls the Senate or the House or anything else. It does not matter. And by the way, whoever does, it's because he put them there. As much as I may not like it. We take great comfort in passages like this because we get the revel and wonder and worship and the wonder of God's sovereign purpose in our salvation. It's all about Him. It's not about us. And it's only about us in the context that we're we're the undeserving recipients of so great a salvation. Now next week we'll continue, Lord willing, in conclusion with these last three verses as it relates to the invitation. We now know why it is the invitation can be extended. 
we now know that Christ is adequate. We now know that Christ is sufficient. We now know that Christ controls. We now know that the Father has given him that authority. We now know that the Father and the Son are in intimate communication with each other about these matters. We know that he is sufficient to save, and now he extends an invitation to that complete salvation. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. I guess it begs the question, in the context of what we've been talking about, how is a person saved then? Well, today we've talked about Jesus Christ. We've talked about some of the things that he's done in the context of the Gospels. Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe the things that are said about him? That is a requirement. You were given the information. You're given the knowledge. Scripture is there. You're called to place faith in him. There is no preparation needed. I don't have to make you ready to be saved. The Holy Spirit does the work in the heart. I tell you what is needed and what is required. I point you to one who is adequate and sufficient, and we know today that he is. Do you know him? Do you know him? Well, I trust that you do. If you don't, it's very simple. Cry out to him and you shall be saved. There's no trick here. There's no secret formula, special things that you have to do, an incantation. You don't even have to come forward. Isn't that shocking? You'll notice that we don't sing just as I am here, or four, and four, we haven't sung it once, and we don't sing it 14 times, that's for sure. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with the song, perhaps. We could talk about that, but you can be saved right where you sit. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, save me. I, I, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need you. I'm lost. Save me. It's that simple. There aren't special words to say. You don't even have to come and talk to me. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to talk to Dell or Joel or Aaron or anybody else. You could sit there and right there and take care of it. You could talk to, Lord, I don't know. I, I hear this. I read. I know what you're saying. I'm a sinner. I am lost. What does it say in verse 25? He reveals himself to infants, the humble. Are you humble today? I pray that the Lord will humble you and call him to yourself. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this word and this passage. Thank you for all that you've accomplished. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you for the fact that you set and established this method of salvation and that you know the Son. And we rejoice, Christ, that you are known by the Father and that you know the Father. And we rejoice, Christ, that you are fully adequate to save. And we rejoice that the Spirit and is adequate and, and has revealed Christ to us through the preaching of the Word and brings about re regeneration. We rejoice in all of these things. We're overwhelmed by them. Help us today to marvel and to wonder at so great a salvation. We praise you.